0: may be seated. We are excited this morning uh, to have Jeff Wilkins here again with us. Uh, He was here just a few weeks ago, must have done something right, because we asked him to come back. So (laughs) Jeff, we're excited to hear God's Word preached from you. Good morning. I'm not sure I did anything right. I think, Sam, you got COVID. (laughs) If you would, turn in your Bibles to uh, Exodus 19. It, is a, it really is a joy to be back with you this morning. Um, we are going to do something a little different, sort of, than what you have been doing these last months. Um, instead of looking at 1 Peter, we're going, going to be looking at Exodus 19. Um, it's not really a study of 1 Peter, but it's sort of a study of 1 Peter. Uh, let me explain. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 peter writes this he says but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood to the holy nation a people for god's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once you were not a people but now you are god's people once you had not received mercy but now You have received mercy. Those are staggering words. With those words, Peter is answering the why question of life. Why are we here? And his answer is laid out before us. These words describe the very mission of the church. The mission of the church in a wildly pluralistic, even hostile world. Now, Peter knows that the temptation we face in this world is usually not an out and out denial of Jesus Christ, Um, rather, it is more often a subtle drift. If you've ever been to the beach, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Um, You you never seem to get out of the water where you got in the water, right? I mean, you get in the water, you swim around, you body surf, you do whatever, and you get out of the water and you look around and you realize that your towel and your umbrella and your cooler and your beach chair are a hundred yards up the beach. What's happened? The tide has pulled you away from where you originally got into the water. Well, that's Peter's concern in 1 Peter. Jesus teaches us, right, that that we are to be in the world and not of the world. And what Peter is concerned about is that in our attempt to be in the world, we will be assimilated by the world. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, in Romans 12, that we will be conformed to this world. But here's the thing I want you to see. Peter's words are not defensive. They are are not a call to retreat. They are not a call to create a holy huddle or to circle the wagons. Rather, what Peter gives us are marching orders. Now, You might be going, hold it, Jeff, I thought you said you were preaching on Exodus 19. Um, I am. What Peter is doing in 1 Peter chapter 2 is describing New Testament believers. He is describing those of you who looked at Christ in faith in terms of Old Testament, or in, in Old Testament believers' terms. More specifically, in 1 Peter 2, 9... 1 Peter 2.9 is nothing less than a restatement and a reapplication of what God said to Moses, at the, through Moses, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that means that if we really want to understand what Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 2, we have to take a look at what God says through Moses in exodus 19. so with that in mind if you would let's let's read exodus 19 verses 1 uh, 1 to 6. and i'm going to put on glasses because i can't see this is god's word on the third new moon After the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out for Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. There Israel camped before the Lord, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the very word of God. We should ask that he would teach us this morning. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit, would you open our eyes to behold you In your beauty would you unstop our ears that we might hear you hear you singing the song of love over us would you melt our hearts and would you make us more like Jesus we pray these things in his name amen let me start this morning by asking you a, a question what do all of the following events have in common The birth of a child. The death of a loved one. Graduation from college. Moving, relocating. A life-threatening diagnosis. Getting married. What do all of these things have in common? Well, they are all life-informing and life-transforming events. They shape how you think about yourself, and they set the trajectory for moving forward. Well, beloved of the Lord, that's exactly what we have in Exodus 19. This passage is one of the most life-shaping and trajectory-setting moments in the entire history of Israel. Now, let me set the scene. It's been about three months since this group of beaten down and broken ex-slaves left centuries of bondage in Egypt. They have walked through the Red Sea, a wall of water on their right, a wall of water on their left, God holding back the waters. God has fed them with manna from heaven. He has provided them with water from a rock. God himself describes this miraculous rescue in the most intimate terms in our passage. And in so doing, he describes the heart of his mission, the mission of God. In verse 4, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, I know I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when I was here, but it bears repeating This is the very heart of God. God bringing us to himself. This is what we just sang. God bringing us nigh. Now, what does that mean? Well, in in 1 John, we read twice these words. God is love. God is love. And because God is love, love radiates From God. And when God brings you, brings me to himself, he invites us to enter into and to experience and to enjoy the love of God. The love enjoyed by each member of the Trinity. The love that the Father has for the Son and the Spirit. The love that the Spirit has for the Father and the Son. The love that the Son has... I I already said that. The love that the Father has for the Son in the Spirit. The fact is, this is exactly what Jesus says in the prayer that he prays on the night that he is betrayed. He says, as he prays to the Father, You, Father, love them, which is you and me, even as you have loved me, Jesus. Now, just think about that for a minute. If I were to ask you, how much more do you think God will love you? When you are finally freed from bond or from 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 the taint of sin, when you finally enter into the new heavens and the earth, how much more will God love you then than he does right now? Most of us, if we were often, or if we were honest, would say, He's gonna love me more. But the fact of the matter is he's not. He can't love you more because he loves you with the same passion and intensity and perfection that he loves the Lord Jesus Christ right now. Being brought to God is entering into this love, this love of God that has existed Within God, perfect love, pure love, incomprehensible love, existed in God for all eternity. It is the truth. And yet it is so unbelievably hard to believe, isn't it? John Owen, my favorite Puritan author, once said that the most difficult thing for you and for me to believe is that God the Father actually really loves us. Now, why is that? Well, it's because we we think God is like us. And we're pretty sure that we've overstepped the line. Beloved of the Lord... It is my joy to remind you this morning what Jesus said. I have come not for the righteous, but for sinners. To remind you what the Apostle John says, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then he goes on a few verses later to say, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. To remind you what the Apostle Paul says, that God's grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. That that nothing can nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That is the truth. Our struggle to believe this is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul prays that we would know the height, the depth, the width, and the breadth of the love of Christ. And what that means is that we need to come to Christ like that father in Mark chapter 9 who brings his son to Jesus. and. And, and, and wants Jesus to heal his son. And he says, if you, can, if you can heal my son, and Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible for him who has faith. And then the father cries out, these might be my favorite verses in the Bible. I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's where I live. And I bet a million dollars it's where you live As well. And and here's the thing that you need to know God's love is true regardless of how you feel at any given moment. His love for you is not contingent upon what you feel, it's true because of who He is. What kind of fruit would this kind of knowledge of the God of love, produce in our lives? let Let me make a couple suggestions. How about contentment? The Apostle Paul writes, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul wrote these words chained to a Roman guard. Could you? Are you content? How about, how about generosity? Some of you know the name Jim Elliot. From, from all accounts, Jim Elliot was an incredibly gifted man. And he was on the fast track to success when he graduated from Wheaton College in 1949. But instead of cashing in on his gifts and talents and connections and the opportunities that were laid before him, he and his wife, Elizabeth, moved to Ecuador to try to reach the Alca Indians, a group of indigenous people considered violent and dangerous to outsiders who would ultimately kill Jim Elliot. Elliot in his journal dated October 28, 1949, wrote these words: He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do those words resonate in your heart? Are you generous? How about joy? joy in facing struggles joy in facing trials the apostle paul writes in this you rejoice though now or peter though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials though you do not know now see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory do you know this kind of joy how about delighting in God above all else. In other words, do you want God himself more than you want the good gifts of God? Can you sing from your heart, go then earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn and pain, in thy service pain is pleasure, with thy favor Losses gain. Henry Light was not a spiritual masochist, but he knew something. He knew that God was all he needed. If if all you had was God, would that be enough? Do you delight in God? Contentment, generosity, joy, and delighting in God Himself are certainly what God wants from us. But even more than that, they're what God wants for us. And they are what God is working in us. This is where God is taking us. This is our destiny. This is the heart of the mission of God. God is bringing us To himself. And and here's what's so unbelievably astounding about this God doesn't accomplish his mission by simply waving his hand. Unlike creation in Genesis chapter 1, he doesn't just say, let there be, and there was, or make it so. Rather, when God calls us to himself, he calls us to actually partner in his mission. In fact, it's it's not just that we partner with God in His mission, but God actually works His mission through us. So let's think for a minute about the mission of God's people. And let's begin by asking another question. What does participation in the mission of God look like? Well, God answers that question for us in Exodus 19, verse 6. And He says that the people of God are to be what? What? Two things, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a priest? Well, in the Old Testament, priests had two basic jobs. Job number one, in Leviticus 10 11, God says to Aaron the high priest, you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to the Israelites by Moses. In other words, it was the priest's job to know and to make known the ways and the word and the commands of God. That is job number one. The priests were to bring God to the people. But there was also another job. In in the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus tells us that when someone sinned and wanted to make a sin offering, What that person had to do was to to bring an animal to the sanctuary, and they would lay their hands on the animal, and the animal would be slaughtered. And then the priest would take the blood of that slaughtered lamb and throw it on the altar, which represented the Lord. And then the priest would declare to the person bringing the sacrifice that their sins were forgiven and that their fellowship with God had been restored. If, if job number one is bringing God to the people, job number two is the priest to bring the people to God. Now, how does this help us understand our mission? Well, it tells us something very important. It tells us that you and I don't exist for ourselves. We actually exist for one another, and we exist for people who would never darken the doors of the church. We exist for one another. Look around you. You exist for the person sitting next to you. You exist for for the person sitting across this room from you. We exist for our children. We exist for our parents. We exist for our spouses and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our calling is to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to speak the truth in love to one another, to help meet the needs of one another, to bear each other's burdens, to hold each other accountable, to use our gifts for the building up of each other. But we don't just exist for each other. We also exist for those guys that live across the street from us who throw drunken parties and leave the streets littered with empty beer cans and liquor bottles. We exist for the reclusive old woman who's lived in her house for the last 40 years, and you rarely see her. We exist for the guy who was raised in the church but walked away when he went to college, and hasn't darkened the door of a church in decades. We exist for the college professor who thinks that Christians are mentally deficient. We exist for the neighbor who has the Trump sign or the Biden sign. I'm not making a political statement. Pick your person. It's the other guy. We exist for the person who votes for the other guy. We exist to pray and and to encourage and to speak the truth in love and, and, and to help meet the needs of these people too, unashamedly pointing them to Jesus through both our words and our deeds. This is what it means to be a kingdom of priests in our day. But our mission is also to be a holy nation if the first thing we see is that we exist for each other and for others, what we see here is that we also exist with each other. When God calls the Israelites, He doesn't say, you shall be kingdoms, plural, of priests and holy nations, plural. (coughs) He says, you shall be to me a kingdom, singular, of priests and a holy nation, singular. And what that means is that whatever it looks like to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, we are supposed to do it together. God's grace to us in Jesus breaks down the barrier that exists between God and his people. As believers, we now have access by faith into his presence. We call him our God, our Father, our creator, our redeemer, our king. But God's grace to us in Jesus also breaks down the barriers that exist between us. When God unifies us or unites us to Himself in Jesus Christ, He also unites us to, the, uh, to others who have been united to Him in Jesus Christ, building us into a community that can only be explained by the presence and the power of the Spirit of God. God has designed the church to be a community of sinners and saints. He has designed the church to be a community of doubters and believers, of seekers and skeptics, of prodigals and Pharisees, of Presbyterians and non-Presbyterians, of young and old, of married and unmarried, of leaders and followers, of famous and infamous, of our own race and other races, happy and depressed, helpers and those who need help, creatives and corporates, conservatives and liberals, Americans and internationals, rich and poor, public and private and homeschooled. As I mentioned to you last time I was with you, the importance of gospel community is absolutely critical. It is is critical not only for the health of the body, but also for our testimony to the watching world. But there's something else that we need to see here. God is not only creating a unified and united people, a nation, but he's also creating a holy people. Now, what does it mean to be holy? In the Old Testament, being holy didn't mean being especially religious. It meant being especially different, especially distinct. It meant that there was supposed to be something about us that sets us apart from the people around us. How how are God's people to be set apart? Well, look at the beginning of verse 5. God says to Moses, and he says to you and to me, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation... If you will obey my voice and keep my commandments. How are we to to be set apart? Our obedience to God and his law is what sets us apart. Now, for some of us, we don't know what to do with this. Because we've always believed, we're saved by grace, faith, not obedience. And yet, God is clearly calling his people in this passage to a life of obedience. How are we supposed to make sense of that? Well, I want you to think about the sequence that we see In verses four and five, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey. What does that sequence tell you? It tells us that salvation has always been and will always be by grace. The Israelites had already been saved. They had already been brought out on eagles' wings before God gave them any commandments. Exodus 19 comes before Exodus 20. And what that means is that grace is not and never will be the fruit of obedience. Rather, our obedience is actually a fruit of God's grace. Obedience is evidence that God is at work in our hearts and our lives. What we see in our passage is that our obedience is not a condition of salvation. We are not saved by our obedience. Obedience is a condition of mission. It's how we are a holy people. In other words, we are a kingdom of priests by being a holy nation. Beloved, like the Israelites standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, our mission is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. How do we do that? By obeying God's word and keeping his commandments. Now, Why is this so hard for us to wrap our heads and our hearts around? Why do we have such a hard time with this call to obedience? I would suggest to you it's because we don't really believe God is good. And that he has our best interest at heart. We don't believe, really believe, that God's steadfast love endures forever. We don't really believe that God's mercies are new every morning. We don't really believe that God is love. We don't really believe that God is our loving Heavenly Father. We don't really believe that God is at work in and through all things for our good. And the result? God's commands Appear to be a burden. But think about this. God is the creator and he is the redeemer. More than that, God is our creator and redeemer. And as we've already said, God is love. And God has proven his love for us in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has proven his love for us. And as our loving creator and redeemer, God's will and God's ways and God's law fits perfectly with the grains of creation and recreation. His commandments aren't burdens, but rather they are signposts. They point toward human flourishing. They point toward the good life. They they point to life as God intends it to be, and they point to life as It will be. Maybe you object. Sure, obedience was required in the Old Testament for God's Old Testament people. But obedience is not required of us. We live by faith. May I remind you of the words of Jesus himself. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is a hard question to wrestle with, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If obeying God is not only the condition of mission, but also evidence of your love for Jesus, how would you say you're doing? It's a a question worth thinking about. If you're like me, the answer to that question is, is pretty discouraging. But I want you to be encouraged, my brothers and my sisters. Consider what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 14. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified did you catch that the author of hebrews is saying that if you are in christ that if you look to jesus in faith jesus if you look to jesus single sacrifice for sin his supreme act of love for you has perfected you for all time it is finished there is therefore now no condemnation. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You have, been, you have been separated from your sin as far as the east is from the west. And God's Spirit is at work in you, sanctifying you, waging war against the deeds of the flesh, weeding the weeds of sin from your heart and cultivating in you the fruit of his spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, we are being transformed from one degree of glory into another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What does this mean for tomorrow? Tomorrow what does this mean for next week? What does this mean for next month? It means that we are safe and secure because Christ's single sacrifice for sins has perfected us for all time. And it means that since believers aren't perfect but are being perfected, Since we are all works in progress, since we are being sanctified, since we are being made holy, we both can and must confidently step into God's call and listen and obey. Because His love is both a perfect and a perfecting love love as the apostle paul says i have been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live but christ who lives in me beloved of the lord and that is who you are beloved of the lord let me close with this you are god's treasured possession he can love you no more tomorrow than he does today you God will never, ever leave you or forsake you. He is with you always. It is He Himself who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And He will complete the good work He began in you at the day of Jesus. Do you know What will happen as this truth takes root in your hearts and grows brighter in your eyes of faith? You will be more and more who you have been redeemed to be, which is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your words. Thank you that you have not left us alone to make sense out of life on our own. Thank you for this call, which in some ways discourages us, and yet it it forces us out of ourselves and, and draws us to you, who is our only hope in life and death. Lord, please give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Please allow us to taste you and see you. Please, Lord, be beautiful in our eyes and transform our hearts. Make us more like Jesus. Make us into the people that you have created and redeemed us to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.